Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Obadiah. Don't turn too quickly or you'll turn right past it because it's not very long. It's the shortest book in the whole Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. Uh, If you don't have a Bible too, let me go ahead and mention that there are Bibles scattered out through the seating areas. Uh, You should see one. If you don't, flag somebody down. I'm sure they can pass one to you. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would really love it if you would just take that one with you. And it would be our gift to you, and we'd love to talk to you about what you find there. Um, So, Obadiah. I want to start with a question for you. Have you ever found yourself doubting whether or not God's promises to you are true, whether they're trustworthy? I guess one way to answer that question would be intellectual kind of doubt. I'm sure most of us have struggled with that at one point or another in our lives. That's not so much what I'm getting at with this question. Have you ever, have you ever really believed that the that never, never really perhaps doubted that God is existing and that He's spoken in the Bible, but just encountered doubt about whether or not He could deliver on the promises that He made, whether or not they they're worth staking your life to? That's the question. Have you ever doubted that? Chances are you have. If you've been a believer even for a short amount of time, have you ever thought about what causes that kind of doubt? Chances are it's one of two sources. Chances are it's either that it's something that's happened to you, something outside of you, some sort of circumstance or event outside of your control that's happened to you that's thrown doubt or shadows on those promises. Or it's something in you that's caused you to doubt it. Maybe you don't doubt that the promises themselves are true, but you doubt that they can be true for you. Maybe you think you're past saving. Maybe your performance has led you to doubt whether or not you could truly be a believer because a believer just doesn't act or think or feel the way I do. Chances are any kind of doubt you've had about the promises of God and whether they're trustworthy for you come from one of those places. From outside of you, some sort of circumstance outside your control, something someone did to you, something that happened to you, or from inside of you, from some sort of insight into the way that your, your performance is or isn't up to par. One of the most beautiful things about the Bible, to me, is its honesty. Is the fact that in, in so many different places, the Bible's authors are very open about their own struggles with doubt, their struggles to believe that God's promises are true. Job is one of the classic examples, right? Here's this guy who, you know, in, in, in human terms is, is a good guy. He's, he's obedient and he, he worships God properly and then his whole life falls apart. And, and, and he, he takes it for a while. But by the time you get laid into the book of Job, he is upset. He's challenging God. He's doubting that God is a good God in the way that he had hoped that he was. The Psalms are full of language like this. Uh, the, the psalmist is often wondering why the wicked seem to prosper when the righteous don't. Why good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. And those circumstances that they watch seem to cast doubt on the promises of God and the, the commandments of God and, and the whole system that God had revealed to them in their law and the covenant. I think one of the m- most important periods for this sort of reflection in the Old Testament reflection on what it what circumstances that you're experiencing have to do for whether or not you can trust God. I think one of the most important sections of the Old Testament on this is the minor prophets where we're we're studying today. So so this this all fall we're taking one minor prophet per week 
and trying to dig into it and understand its message in its own time and understand how it sets us up for the significance and value of Jesus. And, and some of the minor prophets were written after the judgment that came on Israel. So Israel, we, we've already surveyed this history before. We'll do it more later. But uh, Israel turned against God. They went to idolatry. God warned them over and over through the prophets, and they didn't respond in repentance. And so he sent nations who were more powerful than them and, and had them wipe out Israel and Israel's southern neighbor Judah and take their people into captivity. Several of the minor prophets respond to that reality. And what, most of what we looked at so far was before the judgment, warning against it, calling them to repentance. Obadiah is our first example of a prophet that's most likely written right after the judgment had come. And it offers us a window into what it was like to be Israel when everything you knew and depended on had just been turned upside down. Obadiah is probably one of the least known of all the prophets. And, and we've already claimed that the, the minor prophets themselves are probably the least known section of the whole Bible. So I'm guessing that you may not have read this before. Or if you have, you don't really remember what it's about. Obadiah is one of the most unique prophecies in the Minor Prophets because it is the first time that we see a prophecy not given directly to Israel, but given to one of Israel's neighbors. Obadiah, if you read it this week, you noticed, is all about Edom, which was one of Israel's neighbors and a a historical enemy of Israel. This prophecy, short as it is, is all about them. But I don't think that we can afford to recognize that it came to Israel. And that it was a word that Israel was meant to overhear. And that it was a word they were meant to overhear because it was meant to encourage them with the fact that even though everything in their experience at that time seemed to point towards God's promises to them not coming true, he would be faithful and the kingdom would come. And the encouragement is rooted in the last sentence of the book, and that is our starting place for today. The reason they can trust God's promises will come true in spite of everything in their lives at that moment that seemed to say that wasn't possible is that the kingdom ultimately shall be the Lord's. The reason the kingdom is worth staking yourself to is that God is the one who brings it in. And if God brings it in, there's nothing that can stop it. What I want to do this morning is first set the stage. I want to describe the history behind this book so that we understand Israel's angst, the kind of questions they were asking, and then turn to Obadiah as an answer to those questions. And when we, when we look at Obadiah as an answer to those questions, as something rooted first and foremost in the fact that the kingdom belongs to God and therefore it's secure, we see that Obadiah encourages Israel on two fronts. Because the kingdom is the Lord's, its enemies, the opposition from its enemies, cannot thwart it. Outside things that may call, a question, call into question God's promises are, not, are a non-factor because of the kingdom is the Lord's. And because the kingdom is the Lord's, in the imperfections of the kingdom's citizens, of God's own people, will not keep that kingdom from coming. Would you stand with me now in honor of God's word as we read from Obadiah? This is the word of the Lord through the prophet. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them. And consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepharad, shall possess the lands of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first, the setting. Israel's question, what of the promised kingdom? In 587, before Christ the year 587, Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians. The handwriting had been on the wall for a while. This is when the axe finally fell. Their military, such as it was, was no match, and their people were transported in large quantity back to Babylon. They found themselves torn off, cut off from everything that mattered to them. Do not underestimate the weight that this event would have for a people who had come to associate themselves, their whole identity, with the promises God had made to save the world through them. 
of course, Genesis tells the story of God's creation, of everything as good, of humankind's fall into sin because of pride, because of a desire to take the place that had been reserved for God. And then from chapter 3 on, from chapter 3 of Genesis through the rest of the Bible, the Bible tells a story of God's intent to save the world in spite of its rebellion against him. And that story begins in, in force with Abraham and promises that God makes to a childless, landless old guy that he is going to give him children and give him a nation and make it out of him. Israel clung to those promises and to the God who had revealed himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's how they knew that they mattered in a world filled with nations bigger and more powerful than them. They knew that they were the ones through whom God was going to bless the nations and reverse the pattern of sin. That's Israel's hope. Never had those promises to them seemed more likely to be fulfilled than in the era of David. If you follow the storyline through Abraham and all his descendants, through the Exodus and on into Joshua where they're coming into the promised land and driving out all of God's enemies from that land and taking possession of it, you find yourself with David and this king who is a man after God's own heart, who, who is not perfect but leads with, with integrity and with the right kind of humility. And in David come to be captured all of the hopes that Israel had that now might be the time for this kingdom that had been promised. Of course, that's the other point to mention, that, 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 that one of the Bible's most important shorthands for salvation is the kingdom. It's going to look like God ruling over his people in a place of harmony and security that was meant originally in the garden and had been lost ever since. It was that the kingdom is what's meant in the promise that you will be my people and I will be your God. David, of course, made it look like this time might be now. In fact, at the pinnacle of David's success as king, he gets a promise from God that one who is of his line, one who was sitting on his throne, would sit on the throne forever. That his throne would never fall apart. And, and, that, and it's, it's a stamp of endorsement that David's reign would be the kingdom that God had promised. This is how the world gets saved. Of course, Solomon comes next and, and things get even better for a while. And surely Israel was thinking, this is the son. This is the one that was promised. But you know the story, I'm sure. Many of you have read this in the Old Testament. Solomon himself, for all his wisdom, begins to turn away from the Lord. He turns to other idols. And his descendants, they, they just it accelerates on a pattern, a cycle of destruction that is unstoppable. The next couple hundred, hundreds of years after Solomon is a, a really bleak story. It's a story that is filled with God pleading with his people to come back through the prophets, through people like Elijah or Elisha, through some of the prophets we read in the last two or three weeks, through Amos and Hosea. But it's a call that had always fallen on deaf ears. And now through this judgment that God had promised would come and that's, that's now come in the, in the passage we're reading for today, Everything that had been associated with their hope that the kingdom was coming soon and now that God's promises will be fulfilled, it had all been stripped away. All the material security from Solomon's era, gone. All the power that Solomon's kingship represented, gone. All of the land that Solomon had expanded the kingdom of Israel into to incorporate all the surrounding land, gone. Now they've got nothing. Now imagine you're a part of the people of Israel that was taken to Babylon. Maybe you're even part of that faithful remnant who still believes and wants to worship God but is 
now called and has, has that belief called into question by everything you're experiencing. Imagine you're the, some of the people of God in Psalm, referred to in Psalm 137, which says, it begins with the people sitting down by the waters of Babylon and weeping as they remember Zion. You know that, you know that passage, Psalm 137? We sat down and wept by the waters of Babylon as we remembered thee, Zion. Everything about who they were now taken away. What of the promise now? But perhaps nothing highlighted just how far they had fallen. Nothing highlighted this, the severity of their condition more than the way they were treated at the hands of their neighbors, the Edomites. Now, the Edomites and the Israelites shared a long and pretty bitter history with each other. The Edomites, of course, the Bible teaches us are the, are the descendants from Esau, who was Jacob's brother. So if Jacob was Israel, Esau was Edom. So they were related. They were blood relatives. And you would think that that would lead them to have a good relationship with each other. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the Old Testament is full of references to, to them doing things to each other. To Edom especially as kind of a thorn in the side of Israel who were always looking for them to fall and to kick them while they were down. And this theme that you can... You can see in, in some of the Psalms, for instance, like one, Psalm 137 or in the book of Ezekiel, it's, it is the driving theme behind Obadiah of, of Edom as Israel's enemy. Now, when they're down, the people they hate perhaps more than any others, lording it over them and celebrating their fall. The image that you get in verses 10 through 14 of Obadiah is the image of, of the Edomites as almost like collaborators under a Nazi regime. I don't know if you're into World War II movies. I, I can't get enough of them. And, and some of those movies feature collaborators, right? People in France or Holland who, who um, even while their countrymen are being oppressed by the Nazis, actually cooperate with them. You can, some, some of the movies show how those guys were treated afterwards, after the war, once the liberation happened, how, how they were ostracized, if not killed, uh, because of all of this deep bitterness that they went with the enemy. That's the way Edom was here. Brothers with Israel by history, but collaborators with the Babylonians. The verse, verses 10 through 15 talk about them not just gloating and taking pleasure in it, but actually contributing to it. Not just standing back and letting it happen without coming to the aid of the Israelites or those who lived in Judah, but actually coming in and helping to loot them, to take whatever they could get their hands on. Maybe another image besides the collaborators is the image we all have in our minds of what happened with Katrina. Remember those videos of, of the looting that went on in Katrina? Katrina or any, any, to pick a national disaster, there's looting that happens. And, and what we think of is here's somebody trying to, trying to benefit from the destruction of someone else. It's, it's blood-curdling. It's, it's just nauseating almost. That's exactly what Edom had done. Perhaps the worst thing is, verse 14 talks about them standing at the crossroads as people are fleeing from Jerusalem, trying to get out ahead of the Babylonians, and they're capturing them and handing them over to the Babylonians. They're essentially selling them into slavery, even though they're bound by blood. Now, that is bad enough on its own, but think about the symbolism. Israel waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled to them, believing that through them God would rule the world. That, that, that the solution to the problems of sin would be realized through their own history. And now imagine this event. Their weak, small, pesky little neighbor. Gloating over them. Kicking them. Kicking dust on them while they're down. 
picking up the pieces, the scraps left behind by the Babylonians and selling them in slavery. Here's what they would have asked. They would have asked, what of the promises of God? If Edom gets to treat God's people like this and get away with it, what does that mean for whether or not God is actually going to deliver on his promises? You see, their circumstances had shifted dramatically. And everything about those circumstances made doubt about the promises of God seem very, very plausible. Obadiah speaks into that void, speaks directly to that angst, and is meant to condemn Edom for its actions, but at the same time encourage Israel with the fact that the kingdom belongs to the Lord, and therefore he has staked himself to it, and therefore it will come, despite the opposition of its enemies and despite the fact that you got where you are based on your own sin, despite the imperfections of his people. Let's dig into Obadiah a little bit more closely and and see these themes as they emerge. Because the kingdom is the the Lord's, it will come despite the opposition of its enemies. That's surely the dominant theme in Obadiah, the promise that Edom's treachery is not going to stand, that appearances may be deceiving, But this present success that Edom is enjoying in its attack on God's people won't stand forever. The reason is that the stability of God's people rests not in their power, but in God's power. There are two themes under this head that come out in Obadiah. That the enemies of God's people, no matter how strong they seem, are no match for God's power. No matter how strong they seem, they're no match for God's power. And, second thing, they're going to get what they deserve. They will be treated in exactly the same way that they have treated others. So they're no match for God's people. That's, that's the majority of this first section of Obadiah. Edom prided itself. It talks about the pride of your heart has deceived you. That's a, that reference in, um, in verse 3. Edom prided itself in three sources of security. They were... Um, a, a hill country, a country that was that was based in some mountains or hills or whatever. I don't know how high they were. So I don't know if we would call them mountains, but they're they're big hills uh, outside of Judah, and that made them very strategically uh, secure because it was hard to take out a civilization that had fortresses built up in the in the mountains. You'd have to work your way up through probably tiny passes through little hollows in between the hills and the rocks and. And that's just a place to get slaughtered. We've seen any number of civilizations come down through attempting to go through places like that and attack, uh, attack these kind of strategic fortresses. So even though Edom was small, they were strong. That's what's being referred to in verses 3 and 4. The pride of living in the clefts of the rock, in a lofty dwelling, soaring like eagles, and setting a nest among the stars. And the Lord says, I'll bring you down from there. I'm the one who made those hills. I live I live wherever my creation extends to, including the stars, if you, could, if you could build a nest there, and I will bring you down. Their pride was also in their wisdom. Verse 8 refers to this. And, and there are other references in, in um, ancient documents of this time to Edom as being associated for some reason with wisdom. Verse 8 says, Will I not destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? You think you're wise? God knows everything. And he'll bring you down. Finally, they 
prided themselves on their alliances. They believed that they, that they had the right kind of friendships with nations that lived around them. And, and maybe even that's what they were after when they handed over the people of Israel who were trying to flee to the Babylonians. They were trying to get in good with them to sort of bolster their position. Verse uh, 7 refers to this confidence that they had. All your allies... And it's a promise that God is going to hit them exactly where they think they're strongest. They think their allies give them security. Here's God's promise to them. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you, and you have no understanding. All these places they thought they were strongest are precisely the places that God is going to expose them. And when he exposes them, the second theme that Obadiah gives us is that he will, he will expose them by giving them exactly what they deserve. Think of the covenants, the way that they worked in the Old Testament. It's all about uh, getting what you deserve. It's all about retribu- retribution, retributive justice, eye for an eye kind of stuff. That's exactly the, the, the system through which God promises punishment to Edom. You can see this in a couple of places, especially verses 15 through 18. Uh, God is warning them of the day of the Lord that's coming on all nations and that it will come to them just as it comes to anyone else. And here's what he says in verse 15. As you have done... It shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, it's an image of them reveling in the destruction of Jerusalem, God's holy mountain. As you have done that, so the nations will do to you. They shall drink continually over you. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they never been. The point is that because, because the kingdom is the Lord's, He attaches his own name, his own reputation, to his promises to his people. Edom had mocked his people, and in mocking his people, they had mocked him. They had mocked the claim that he was the God of Israel and could deliver on what he promised he would give to them. And just as God was bound to punish Israel because they had mocked his name, essentially. When they turned to idols, they said, these things we've made with our hands are more valuable and trustworthy than you are. They've mocked who God is, and God vindicated that by sending them into judgment. So now he will vindicate his name that is attached to his people. Edom has mocked his people. You are not the people of God. God will not deliver you. That's why we're, that's why we're gloating over your disaster. God's not going to let that stand. It's his kingdom, so the opposition of his enemies are no threat to it. I think that this, this central message of Obadiah on how we view those who oppose God's people has a lot of implications for how we view ongoing opposition to God's kingdom. I think it helps us know how we should posture ourselves towards personal attacks that are directly related to Christianity or the church. And also, just the ongoing circumstantial evil that we live under. Just the fact that sin itself, that we believe the spiritual forces of evil and even the power of death, stands in opposition to God's people and his promises to them being true. I think there's insight in the way that God responds to these attackers of his people for the way that we understand how we should think of modern-day, continually ongoing opposition to God's kingdom. Let me say a little more about what I mean. So, So personal attacks personal attacks. What I mean by that is that clearly there are people all over the world who oppose the church, which we take to be God's, the the, the inheritors of the promises God has made for saving the world. There are people all over the world 
that oppose the church or Christianity. How do we relate to that? How do we think about them? Because on the one hand, we get images of judgment. We're told that anyone who stands against God is just going to be wiped out. And because we know God is holy, we know that's a good thing. So in some sense, we're supposed to approve of his justice. But then on the other hand, we're told to love our enemies. How do we hold those two things together? How do we love those who oppose us in the way that Jesus has called us to, but also take some sort of peace or rest in the fact that they who continually oppose the church will not stand? They'll be overthrown. I think the message of Obadiah helps us strike that balance. I've been watching recently um, with the 9-11 anniversary. There was a couple of really great uh, retrospectives that were done. We watched a couple of those. And and one of the things that stood out to me that I had kind of forgotten about was how angry people were after that, right? Some of the interviews of of folks on the ground after that disaster, people were just calling for blood, you know? And and it's understandable why they would. And, and maybe we're tempted even to a similar reaction when we see the church threatened. I mean, some of you have served the kingdom overseas, and you maybe even have friends who you know who have been attacked or even killed for their affiliation with Christianity. And it would be very tempting, and it's only natural to resent that, to almost hate those who would bring that kind of destruction on those that you love or value. We, we hear about martyrdom all the time. It's not something that just happened hundreds of years ago. It happens now. So how are we to think about those who oppose the interests of the church in a way that, help, that also loves them, like Jesus has called us to, but, but takes pleasure in the fact that the kingdom won't be threatened by them? I, I think Obadiah helps us because it tells us that the kingdom ultimately belongs to the Lord and its security is his responsibility and not ours. The kingdom is the Lord's. It's coming because he's going to bring it in. And that means we don't have to be crusaders. God doesn't need us to fight for his kingdom in this world, in this life. In fact, he hasn't told us who of those who, who represent the opposition to the church may actually belong to the church before they die, who may actually repent and believe. He's told us to pray for and work for them to come to faith in Christ. So it would be wrong to take those who are trying to kill, uh, to kill believers and, and hope for their own death. The fact that, that ultimately the kingdom's security rests in God means we don't have to worry about that. It frees us up to know that if they continually oppose the church, they will be unsuccessful, and that's because of God's power. But in the meantime, we're going to do what we can as God gives opportunity to bring them into reconciliation with the church that they oppose. We hold out hope that they will reflect the history of the Apostle Paul, who was at one time a persecutor of the church overseeing the death of those who loved Jesus and served him, but who himself becomes converted mightily and turns into a great ally. That's what we hope for. I think this especially with the Muslim world and how unfortunate some Christian hatred for, for Muslim culture and people has, how unfortunate that hatred has been as it's developed. There's no place for that, and we don't need that because ultimately we know that God is the one who will vindicate his kingdom and not us. I've also been thinking about I've also been thinking about this with regard to the Vandy situation that a lot of you students are in. And, you know, Vandy, I don't know how much the rest of you know, but um, there is this really incredibly foolish, as I understand it, regulation that's now in place at Vanderbilt that prohibits the chartering of any religious organization that restricts its leadership to Christians. 
It's a, apparently a violation of their understanding of the non-discrimination policy that the university has. That if you limit your leadership to Christians, you're discriminating against other Christians, even if you're a Christian organization. Well, that's an, by my reading of it, which is, which is slight, that's just foolish. It just doesn't make sense. And I understand if you guys are upset about that. You should be to some, to some extent. But do you realize that God's kingdom is coming no matter whether Vandy chooses to recognize your religious institution or not? And that frees you up not to have to resent those who are trying to oppose the extension of the kingdom on that campus and frees you up to love them, to respond in grace. Look, you can fight it through whatever channels are available to you, and I'd encourage you to do that. But ultimately, whether that's a losing battle or not doesn't matter at all with with the, the, the prospects of the kingdom on that campus because the kingdom belongs to the Lord, and those who oppose it are not going to succeed. And also, I think that this this message of Obadiah helps us, and this is a little more of a stretch, but I don't think it's too far of a stretch. I think it helps us understand our relationship to circumstantial opposition to God's people. So I I mentioned the the most direct application is the the people who, like Edom, oppose God's people, and, and now we understand God's people to involve the church. We've been grafted into that. That's the most direct application. But, but God's people are opposed by lots of other forces besides other people. We know that the, that the whole world, we believe from Scripture, is a spiritual battleground. That there's, there's some sort of mysterious warfare that's hard for us to understand how it works. So we also know that death itself is a kind of force that stands against us and between us and the hope that's before us. I think the message of Obadiah helps us understand how to encounter that kind of opposition to our hopes. So if your circumstances are threatened by sickness, by financial struggle, by the prospect of death for you or someone that you love, imminent death, there's hope for you in the fact that that, however powerful it may seem and whatever shadow it may cast on your confidence in God's word, it's ultimately not a power, an opposition that can threaten whether that kingdom comes. Trust in God. Trust that his kingdom is coming because he's the one bringing it in as it belongs to him. Finally, because the kingdom is the Lord's, it will come despite the imperfection of its people. This is the last nugget out of Obadiah. I think this this one is maybe even easier for us to relate to. Obviously, Obadiah is a challenge, right? This is a book given thousands of years ago to a people that doesn't even exist anymore, and it's all about their judgment. And we're supposed to figure out how to relate to that today in a way that's meaningful. Of course, we believe that this is God's word, that he's, he's preserved it for us because it does have something for us. And, and here is where I think we can connect with its ongoing meaning to us even more easily. Because the kingdom is the Lord's, it will come despite the imperfection of its people. Here's what I mean. Go back to the setting for this book. This is not this point is not something that's there's no smoking gun for this point in Obadiah itself. It's all about the words that are said in the context in which they were said. The context is Israel has lost everything. And they've lost everything because of their own sin. It was their fault. I go back to Psalm 137 again. And the people of Israel sitting by the waters of Babylon and weeping as they remember what they had and what they've now lost because of their own sin and imperfection. You can imagine that what they, what they were thinking at that time was, is, is there any hope still left? Or is this the end that we've brought ourselves to because we have violated the covenant? 
that's the context in which we should read this promise of a restored kingdom at the end of Obadiah. So at the beginning in verse 19 of Obadiah, we get three verses on a kingdom that's coming, what it's going to look like. And the, the verses describe it geographically. All of those strange place names that you come across in those verses that, that aren't familiar to you, they're all different places around Jerusalem. They refer to east and west and north and south. That's, that's what they represent. Uh, in their own time, that would have been obvious. The point is that the kingdom as it will exist as it did before. The land is all coming back. Of course, it culminates in verse 21 with the promise that saviors will go up to Mount Zion. They will rule Mount Esau. They'll rule over the enemies of God's people. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Get the point of this. Don't miss it. Israel's sin has led them to judgment, but it's not going to prevent the promised kingdom from coming. That's a kingdom to which the Lord has staked his own reputation, and therefore he will secure it by his own power. This doesn't call them back to faithfulness. It doesn't call them to arms against Edom. It just says it, states it as a fact. The kingdom will be the Lord's. It's coming. Here's the point. Of course, Israel, as the recipient of this promise, had to wait for it. They had to believe that God could deliver, even when they couldn't see the deliverance in their own experience. And, in fact, it's almost certain that all those who first heard this prophecy died in captivity. Those who received this promise that the kingdom was still going to come didn't get to see it with their own eyes, just as Abraham died without receiving the promises made to him. So in that sense, we find ourselves today where Israel found itself as it received this promise. We find ourselves as those who have seen these promises of a kingdom get expanded in the New Testament. We've seen... The author, authors like Paul take this promised kingdom and explain it as a, as a reference to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth, to, to the restoration of all things in a place where there is perfect security and where God is all and in all. That's how we understand the expansion of this kingdom promise, but we don't see it, right? We're waiting for this. Now, this is not a place for a full explanation of how, how these promises of this particular land get traced out to the promise of heaven. There are some great books that show this theme as it gets developed. So that if you pull the promise of land like a thread, you'll ultimately end up with the new heavens and the new earth. The point is, is simply this. We wait for heaven just like they waited for the deliverance of this kingdom. And we, we also encounter things that seem to call the reality of heaven or its possibility into question. It's so clearly not a reality yet. We have sin patterns that we can't shake, even though we're told that this kingdom is going to be a kingdom that's holy. We have insecurities galore, not least physical ones, but also psychological ones and emotional ones, and we're told that this kingdom is a place of plenty, a place of no want, a place of no tears and no crying and no sorrow. We're called to the same faith that Israel was called to here. That the kingdom was only ever possibly the Lord's. It's only, gonna, it's only ever possible if it's something God delivers on. And therefore, our faith in the coming of that kingdom is not rooted in circumstances, but is rooted directly in our faith in the God who promises to deliver that kingdom. We can bank on it because we can bank on him. 
But there's another important sense in which we are not in the same place that Israel was. I mentioned we're, we're kind of like in the same place that Israel who received this first prophecy is. We, we're told that kingdom is coming. We don't see it. In fact, we see a lot of things that aren't consistent with it. But there is a very real sense in which we are not where Israel was because we live on this side of Jesus. What I want to leave you with is a sense of how Jesus' coming, his life and his death, point us even with even more confidence to the, to the stability of these promises. We've summarized the, the hopes of Obadiah as a word of encouragement to Israel in exile as a promise that the enemies can't stop the promised salvation, and neither can God's people, the sin of God's people. Nothing outside, nothing inside can keep that kingdom from coming. That's the promise of Obadiah. It's summarized by conviction that the kingdom is going to be the Lord's and that it be established as saviors went up on Mount Zion to rule over Mount Esau. As a savior goes to Jerusalem to defeat and rule over once and for all all things that oppose God's people. That's that's rooted in the hope of verse 21. Now fast forward to Jesus' coming. Remember back in our own history as a congregation to our study of the Gospel of Mark. Remember that Mark opens with Jesus making a declaration to the world that the kingdom has come in me. Repent and believe the Gospel. Remember that the first half of Mark is all about proving Jesus can put his money where his mouth is. It's about him doing amazing things that no one else could do that show he was divine. And then remember that at the turning point of Mark's gospel, around chapter 8, Jesus begins to reveal something that no one expected would would ever happen with the Messiah. That in fact, his work to redeem the world would involve an ultimate act of shame. That his coming as a king over a kingdom that will last forever is, is marked by a crowning ceremony that involves his death. He begins to teach this starting in chapter 8 and unfolding throughout the rest of Mark. And all of that second half of the book, scholars point to it as a single journey that Jesus is taking from wherever he was when he first made reference to his death up to Jerusalem. There's an emphasis in all the details of Mark on him marching upward. He is going up. Mount Zion, to accomplish the institution of this kingdom. Now read that in light of Obadiah and its promise, that a Savior will go to Mount Zion and rule over Mount Esau. Now flash forward to Jesus' death. He's crowned with a crown of thorns. He has become the king through an ultimate act of shame. And he fast forward to the end of the book and his resurrection, where in that event he conquered once and for all the ultimate enemy of God's people, the power of death that had set in as soon as they opposed God's rule. You fast forward to Jesus and you fast forward to the fulfillment or a, a, a dramatic image of a coming full fulfillment of the hopes that Obadiah's prophecy leaves us with. There's a kingdom that's coming because God is going to accomplish it. Because in Christ, something is done for us that we could not do for ourselves and that therefore we can't screw up for ourselves. The kingdom is the Lord's, and it's proven in the act of Jesus' death and resurrection. So as we look to Obadiah, we look through Obadiah to a growing, a swelling confidence in the power of God shown to us in Jesus. And we look forward to his second coming with a hope that's rooted in what we've already seen him do. Obadiah is about the security of the kingdom that ultimately, read in light of the whole Bible story, Obadiah is about Jesus 
who has come as a perfect token of God's commitment to make good on his promises. Read Obadiah with that hope. Will you pray with me?